Welcome to the Inspired Women Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Hall, psychology student, wife, and mama four. On this podcast, I share helpful life tips and stories from inspirational women. Warning, sometimes we chat about taboo topics and drop some F-bombs. Thank you for tuning in with me today. Enjoy the episode. Hey, everybody. Today, I'm here with Yvonne. Yvonne Caputo has been a teacher. She taught in the public school system for 18 years. Wow. Good. Thank you. Thank you for all that you did. Because <laughs> I can't imagine I have little people. My little people are uh, nine. And then I have an oldest one who's 18. And I just could not imagine being a teacher. I always send their teachers gifts because I'm like, no, nah, I can't. No, that when they shut down school for like a couple months <laughs> last year, I was like, no, no, I can't. Mm-mm. No. <laughs> so anyways, she has also been the head of human resources in a retirement community, a corporate trainer and consultant, and a psychotherapist. She has a master's degree in education and in clinical psychology. She lives in Pennsylvania with her best friend, who is also her husband. Together, they have three children, three grandchildren, and a Labradoodle. Yay, Labradoodles. Those are so cute. (laughs) So thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. So when you apply, you talked about... Um, a little bit about your book, uh, which I'll make sure to link up in the show notes, but more the focus was your dad and how you both um, created this relationship. And I'd love for you to start us out with how did that happen? Like, where did it go? Like, this is a very interesting story. Um, my father was greatest generation and a World War II vet. And his idea of fatherhood, particularly with his daughters, was a stable roof over the house, uh, meals on the table, and um, actually on the table at 5.30 or 6 o'clock when he got home from work. And then rest of the evening was free time for him. And that meant hobbies, or there were times um, that he worked two jobs. So the connection that I would have liked to have had with my father didn't exist. And growing up and becoming an adult, things shifted a little bit because one of the stories in the book is about Um, having an argument with my dad over race relations, which was something that we could really, you know, go head to toe on. Oh, yes. And we've done so many podcasts on that. (laughs) And, And so I'm sitting at the Thanksgiving table with uh, all these relatives. And I realize that if I say something, I'm not going to be able to take it back. And that what I'm about to say probably could be the most hurtful thing. And so I got up from Thanksgiving table, pushed my chair in, got my coat and said, I'm going for a walk. And this was in Toledo, Ohio. And I walked around this big, huge block over 
and over and over again, trying to settle down. But my head was racing with, I should have said, I could have said, who is this man who is my father? Mm-hmm. When it started to get dusk, I came back to the house. Everything was quiet. The dishes were done. The lights were down. Everybody was upstairs in bed, but my mother. And she was in the TV room. And I went in and sat down beside her. And she looked at me with one of those looks that you never forget. Mm-hmm. And she said, Yvonne, if you want to know your father, you're going to have to go to him. He's not going to come to you. And so I shifted at that point. I was in my late 20s. I didn't bring up hot topics. I talked to him about things that would interest him. I asked him to do things for me when I moved to a, into an apartment. So, so we came to this kind of better than mutual understanding, but it still wasn't where I wanted it to be. Then in 2008, we were on the phone and dad lived six and a half hours away from me. So we did our weekly, sometimes more than weekly phone calls. And it was generally how he was feeling, what were his doctor's appointment like. Um, he was now on dialysis. So how, did, how were his treatments going? It would be those kinds of things. And then we'd stumble and the phone call would end. I was not a sports person. So I couldn't get into those kinds of topics of conversations. On that night in January, he told me this funny, quirky, off the wall story about being in freed Belgium at the end of the war. They lost an engine and they didn't think they were gonna make it back to England. So they landed in in Belgium to have the engine repaired. They bartered with American cigarettes that they kept on board the plane in case they were down, you know, they bartered with American cigarettes for French champagne. (laughs) They loaded the champagne on the B-24, took it back to the airbase, were good guys and divvied it up between the officers club and the the non-com club. Um, The end of the story is the following morning, the commander of the airbase called for missions and couldn't understand why so many of his Air Force folks were a little under the weather. (laughs) So dad's telling me this story. And in the midst of it, I say to him, let me get a piece of paper. I want to write this down. What the hell do you want to do that for? my deep dad's deep resonating voice. And I said, I just think this is something that the family might like to read. So the following week, when our no more phone conversation happened, I said to dad, if you're willing, can you start at the beginning? And he did. And every week, story after story after story after story came rolling off of his tongue. And there was a certain 
story. I think that I really, looking back on it, felt this incredible shift with dad. He uh, was stationed for basic training as a cadet in Miami Beach. And they were billeted in hotel rooms. Now, dad would say they were pared down. None of the fun, fancy stuff was in those hotel rooms. And I said, well, what was the name of the hotel? He said, I don't remember. I said, well, do you remember where it was? And he gave me two streets that were coordinates. So having the internet, I go on the internet and I start searching and I send him a picture and I get an email back. No, that's not it. I send him another picture. No, that's not it. Finally, I send him a picture and he said, that's it. Good work. Love you, dad. Those small words, that's it. Good work. Love you, dad. And um, we just continued in that vein for two years. And I put it all together as a book and really felt like I had something. Dad wasn't a hero in the heroic sense of the word. Right. He, he didn't land on D-Day in Omaha Beach. He had five missions under his belt because he didn't get to England until late in the war. Um, he was an ordinary GI, but he did some pretty extraordinary things. And so because I'm a lover of history, I thought, you know what? I think there might be a market to tell the story of an ordinary GI. So that's how it all started. Um, it was it was my dad's getting this. She's really interested in who I am. Mm. She's really interested in what happened to me. She's really interested in my story. And so he began to open up about other things as well. So that's how it all happened. That's amazing. I, all I can think is like to them, it seems ordinary, right? But to us who have never had those experiences, they're extraordinary. My, uh, my grandfather, uh, he was in South Korea. And I remember him telling me, um, I think it was during the Vietnam War. Um, he kept telling me about how he would drive a, 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 a plow, I think, is that's what he said. And he would go up to the border, but then he'd have to turn right back around you know, because you couldn't go over into North Korea. That was not a thing. Um, but all of these little things, and I would ask him, you know, the questions about what he did and everything like that. And it was a culture shock for him. Like he went from this very, I'm from like a small town in upstate New York, Canada adjacent, like very small area of the country not a lot of diversity to like california is where he was stationed and he was just like what is this <laughs> who are all these people what is this um so these little stories to them don't seem extraordinary but to us that have never experienced them 
they're very extraordinary. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that I did when I was working on the book is I did a lot of research and I needed to fill in the gaps. I needed to make the story richer. I needed the narrative to, to, to come from somewhere. And I read a chapter in Donald Miller's book, The Eighth Air Force, and he called this chapter The Dangerous Skies. My father was navigating a plane in the nose of a B-24, 22,000 feet above the ground, minus 40 degrees in a non-pressurized air cabin, wearing a heat suit that plugged into a generator on, on the plane, all right? Gloves, oxygen masks, all that kind of stuff. And when I read that, it just like took my breath away. I mean, it gave me more of a sense of what in the world this man would have gone through. It gave me context to the father that I didn't think I'd known. It helped me to understand him in a, in a different way. And, and I'm just thinking this now. It fostered a compassion. It fostered a compassion for my father that hadn't been there before. So um, he learned to lean on me in ways that I just thought were absolutely glorious. Um, he opened up and told me about his recurring nightmare when he came home from the war. Um, he's in the B-24 and the B-24 is hit by flak. And flak is incendiary bombs that are shot up into the sky and they reach a certain pressure and they explode and there's shrapnel going all around. And these planes, the American planes, the allied planes are flying in really, really tight formations. They can't drop down. They can't get away from the flak. They fly through it, hoping that everything's going to be okay. Well, in his dream, everything's not okay. They're going down and he needs to crawl through a passageway to get to the bomb bay so that he can parachute out. In the dream, the passageway he's crawling through is lined with stainless steel and there's nowhere to get what I would call purchase. He can't pull himself through. And my mother said that she would wake him up screaming from these nightmares and he never told her what they were. So he's telling me about this nightmare. And I said to him, cause I'm a psychotherapist. I said, I said, dad, do you know that your nightmares were normal? What do you mean? I said, anyone who experiences or, or, or sees the kind of traumatic stuff that you see 
nightmares are normal mm-hmm. to what you witnessed. And I said, what really makes me sad is they didn't know it. They had no idea during, the, during World War II about the psychological manifestations of somebody who's been through war. I said, and, and if you'd had help or if you'd had somebody tell you, there would have been a way to help you get rid of those dreams rather than suffer through them for three full years. Yeah. Megan, the dreams were so bad that he literally dug holes through the sheets and into the mattress. Mm. They just, they had to destroy one of the mattresses and, and get a new one. So dad and I could be really sarcastic with each other. So we talked about this for a while and I said, so dad, sorry, you're normal. <laughs> and, and he, during that conversation, he said to me, so how do you know this stuff? And I said, it's a part of what I do. You know, it's a part of the vocation that I've chosen. And then the other experience that he had, um, we would go to air shows all the time as kids. He loved anything that flew. Probably and gave he, him some, brought up some really good memories of what yeah, he did. Yeah. And, and so um, he would also take his buddies to air shows once we kids were grown. So he and a friend went to write Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio. And the first thing that dad did was take a beeline over to where the planes of World War II were set up. And he gets to the B-24 and he's walking down one side of it. He comes around the tail and parked right next door is a German jet. And he just passed out. He dropped like a shot to the floor. And when he came to, his friend said to him, well, what was that all about? What happened? He said, I don't know. And he got up and they went on. And I said, when he was telling me this story as a part of the book, I said, dad, that's a flashback. Mm-hmm. That's a flashback. And here's what happens. There's a little part of your brain that stores a memory of everything that's ever happened to you. And when you saw that plane, it recalled that memory. So tell me, Dad, tell me about the Messerschmitt. He said, oh, honey, that thing was so fast. It was so fast that our gunners couldn't trail it and shoot it out of the sky. And it was so agile that it could come up underneath us or it could come over us. And we were sitting ducks. And I said, so the minute that you saw that plane, some 56 years later, your brain remembered Mm -hmm. and your brain did what brains do. It reacted and you played dead. I said, so here again, this is another kind of thing that was normal given what you witnessed. So as a daughter as a daughter, being able to ease something that this man carried for all those years was another gift of of my going to him and listening. And he talked to me about dying and wanting to die. And he talked to me about how he wanted to die. So this 
real connection, father-daughter connection, just was so much a part of what happened via writing that book. That's amazing. That's I, I, all I think is like all of those people out there who don't have, uh, you know, very good relationships with their parents. My um, dad served in the army and we know barely anything about his time in the army. Some of the stories he tells, we think he even made up because they don't and not. Let me be clear. It is because it is literally impossible <laughs> for them to happen. Um, Cause he said, you know, I, I did this and I was here and I'm like, they don't add up. Like you can have done all those things all at once. It's not possible. And so me, I want to know the real stories. What did you actually do? Like not these stories. And I don't know, maybe he made up the stories to deal with the things that he did. And he saw, you know, maybe those were his ways of coping possibly with what he went through but you always you know you want to know those things and sometimes people can't tell you some things are classified and you know um my husband has experience in the military and there are some things that he said I'll never be able to tell you he's like for the rest of my life even if they declassify it I still can't tell you because I was told I can't ever talk about it and so he was like, you can go if it gets declassified and, and read about it yourself, <laughs> but I can't tell you. It goes against everything that, you know, I signed up for and like all the, you know, non-disclosure agreements and confidentiality agreements. And, and it's just amazing because these people who have been in the military and I've, I've interviewed quite a few female veterans on the, on the podcast, the most fascinating stories but also even in 2021 I don't think there's enough mental health care for people in the military I I mean there wasn't any in your dad's time um so we've made progress but like these things that they go through and they see and the kind of trauma they experience but but nobody's doing the right things to help them. We're still having all of these problems with mental health. So anyways, it, uh, the whole point is some of us would, would wish to have that kind of experience you did with your dad. That's an amazing experience. And, and all it did was take one little question, like one, are you willing to talk to me about this and being curious about his experiences? Well, one of the things I think happened in retrospect is we started with his graduation from high school. Safe subject. We talked about his going to the youth administration program, FDR's program, and learning to repair airplanes. Safe subject. From there, we went on to how he got out of his presidential deferment. Megan, he never would have had to have gone to war. He could have stayed home state, safe, stateside. But he That's amazing get, in itself. Yes. But he happened to get into a plane and fly. And he didn't go because he was committed to, to freeing people from Hitler. He didn't go out of, sense of, out of a sense of duty. He wanted to fly. Pure and simple. He wanted to learn to fly. So we started on what was the easy stuff chronologically. And I think that that was also 
really, really helpful because over the time, he began to learn that it was safe to tell me more because I sat back and I listened and I asked open-ended questions. And, and because of a comment you made, some of the stuff he did tell me sounded really unbelievable. I checked it out. All right, so he's in Miami Beach. They do calisthenics on the beach in the morning. He has contracted amoebic dysentery because he ate something he shouldn't have or that was tainted. He goes over to the slit trench, which is where GIs can go, you know, on the beach, drops his drawers, diarrhea, is so weak from being dehydrated that he falls into the slit trench. Ah, ah. <laughs> they pick him up out of the slit trench, throw him in the ocean before he goes over to the hospital. When he's at the hospital, he's treated with arsenic. And I said, no way, no way, uh-uh. And he, you know, it just came out of his mouth. And so I went on the internet and sure enough, that was how they treated amoebic dysentery was just little tiny doses of arsenic to kill the bacteria. Penicillin had been I think it was 1941 when it was discovered, and it was discovered in Britain. But in 1941, Britain couldn't mass produce it. They just didn't have the resources. So they brought the formula to the United States. It was mass produced. And my dad did get um, penicillin uh, towards the end of the war for an infection. So sometimes he said things to me that just didn't seem real. He said that one of the missions that he was on, they dropped napalm. And I said, no way. He said, oh, yeah. And he said, thank God it wasn't on my plane. He said, we just had incendiary bombs. So lo and behold, don't I go and do the research? Mm -hmm. Napalm was dropped during the Second World War. So that was also fascinating to me, too, is, is to, to be able to go back into some of the things that he said. I decided to self-publish because I wanted the book to be published while I was still on this side of the grass. <laughs> My dad sang. And so I reached out um, to four different places. And I, the interview with Ingenium Books really sold me because my editor, my now editor, really listened to what I wanted to do with the book. So I sent her the third draft. It went through draft one, draft two, draft three, professional help all along the way. She took the manuscript, threw it into a blender, threw it back to me and said, section one is going to be how you didn't get along. Section two, I think, should be your dad's story, but written in your dad's voice. Section three should be how the writing of the book brought you to the place where you wanted to be with your dad. When she said section two, writing in my father's voice. Now, I never dreamed of being a writer. I never dreamed of being a writer. 
and I will say this out loud for your entire audience. I was 72 years old when I held my book in my hands for the first time. So going, going back to writing in my dad's voice, and by the way, he had passed away by this time, I thought, well, silly girl, silly, silly girl, you have all the letters that dad wrote to mom while oh, he was overseas. That's so sweet that she kept them. Ah, thick, thick. And, and I've got some of hers. He said he didn't have a place to keep them, but I've got some of hers. Oh, yeah, I can imagine they didn't really have a place to store them. <laughs> so that's what I did is, is I went back and I read all of the letters, depending on what section of the book or what chapter I was in. And that's how I found my dad's voice. That's amazing. What an amazing experience being able to read those letters. Yeah. And to read them. Here's a piece in terms of understanding too. understanding my dad. On several occasions, he would say to my mom, you know, we're going to get together on the weekend and there's so much I have to tell you and so much I want to share with you. But when I get there, I don't say anything. It was just something he couldn't do. You know, he could talk about things and talk about things that he was doing, talk about things he was interested in. But given his own um, growing up, he grew up with his father and mother, both who uh, came from Italy. Um, neither of them ever really learned to speak the English language. Um, his brothers and sisters. Okay. So he grew up in a family that probably, for sure, didn't talk about the personal stuff, didn't talk about the heartfelt stuff. Um, my Aunt Josephine, his older sister, uh, the eldest sister, as a matter of fact, would tell my mother, don't tell your children that you love them, because if you do, they'll take advantage. Oh, my. <laughs> so, so having all of these pieces of information, his letters and all the background stories, I came to understand dad in a new way. So yeah. there's that piece of it. There's that piece of it as well. Well, we got to think back in the generation, not that it's an excuse, but in the generation that they grew up in, it wasn't acceptable for men to express themselves. I mean, even today, a lot of people don't find it acceptable for men to express themselves, especially those deep emotions that he had to have had from his experiences. And instead, Sadly, he had to stuff them away because he had nowhere to talk about them, mm -hmm. you know, and until you gave him that opportunity to talk about them. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a blessing. It was a blessing. What happened to 
with dad is because we were able to have these conversations, I was able to talk to him and, and I worked at a retirement community too. So, I mean, I had this education about what's necessary to do things with dad like advanced directives. And advanced directives are the documents that tell doctors and your family what kind of treatment you want and do not want, medical treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, when he and I were together at the attorneys, he made, he made me his medical power of attorney. All right. So that I knew in the end that I was going to have this responsibility. But when I was working at a retirement community, I was introduced to a fabulous document called the five wishes. Oh, I've not heard of this. Okay. The fat, the five wishes is produced by aging with dignity. It is a document that goes beyond normal um, advanced directives. And in it, in the five wishes, questions like, how do you want to be remembered? What do you want your children to know? What do you want your funeral to be like? All of these really nitty gritty kinds of things. And so when dad was in the hospital, and that happened many times later in life because his sugars would get all out of whack and they change his medications and all these things. So I took the five wishes home with me. And I sat down on the bed beside him in the hospital. And his legs were draped over the side and we had that little um, hospital table rolled up. And we went through page by page, page by page, well, dad, what about that? Well, what about that? Um, when it came at time for funerals, it said, dad said to me, I don't want people standing up and talking about me during the funeral. If they haven't said it to my face, I don't want them doing it during the <laughs> funeral. Don't you let them do it. So we crossed that one out. Right. We crossed that one out. Um, for his funeral, he wanted a Catholic mass. He wanted a high mass. My husband has a glorious tenor voice. He said, I want Kirk to sing. I want him to do the Ave Maria, the Lord's Prayer, and I forgot the third. It'll come to me. Um, So when he said, oh, the other thing he said was, and I want to go out of my house feet first. (laughs) So Fast forward a couple of years. Amazing Grace. That's that's the thing I couldn't figure out. Fast forward a couple of years. And he just had gotten out of the hospital. I had just come home from Meadville. I could hear something in his voice. And he said to me, he said, Yvonne, I'm scared. No. And I said, Dad, I'll be home. I'll drive home tomorrow morning. And in the meantime, I'll try and find somebody to come and stay with you. And so 
I got home and within two and a half hours, he was gone. Oh. However, I was able to put into motion what I knew he wanted. I had the five wishes. I called the hospital and I said, there's a do not resuscitate order on his chart. Mm -hmm. They're bringing him into the emergency room. And the EMTs at this point were at the house and they were working on dad. And the surgeon or the, the emergency doctor called the one of the EMTs and said, you can stop working on him. So they called me into the room and said, it won't be long. And I laid down on the floor beside him and wrapped my arms around him and told him that I loved him and told him that he was going to be with mom where he wanted to be. And I said the Lord's prayer in his ear. And he passed away shortly thereafter. And if you can imagine this scene, the EMTs put him on a gurney. They're going to take him to the emergency room to be pronounced. Okay. Um, this is northwestern Pennsylvania. It is snowing an inch an hour. It's accumulating like crazy. They take him out to the ambulance. And I walked out beside him. And I'm doing this. Yes. <laughs> and the EMTs looked at me like I had six heads. And I said, you just gave my father his dying wish. He was carried out of his house feet first. And, and I'll tell anybody who will listening that the grief of, that I feel losing my father is so vastly different than the grief that I feel from losing my mother or losing my brother. There's, I, oh, it's um, Dickens. It, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times that I can look back on that and feel such incredible joy paradoxically right beside the awfulness of not having him around anymore. So would I have him back in a heartbeat? Absolutely. Are there questions I want to ask him? Well, I've got so much more I want to know. <laughs> All of that's true. But on my dad's face was this soft, sweet smile that told me everything I needed to know. He was at peace, and he was where he wanted to be. And he didn't die in the hospital, and he didn't die alone. So, absolutely, you know, to be, to come from not feeling like I know my dad and, and feeling estranged from him, not in a terrible, terrible way, but feeling like we just didn't have that connection to being able to see him go on that final journey is like a gift. It's the biggest, most incredible gift I've ever had in my life. That, that is amazing. That's, that's amazing. I love it so much. And I think people should read your book and, and here, obviously this is just a small little smidgen of what 
this journey was like for you. Um, but the time goes by really quick. <laughs> what would you like to leave the Inspired Women audience with? What would you like them to know as we wrap things up? Like, remember when I reached out to you, you know, and I said this earlier, I'm not at all uncomfortable saying that I am 74 years old, that keep pushing, keep thinking about where you want to go next, think, keep doing whatever it is that you want to do to sit back and be fulfilled as a human being. You know, yes, fulfilled being a wife and mother. Yes, being fulfilled um, being an immigrant. Yes, being fulfilled with whatever comes your way. But you can do that when you have a lifetime. So to know that you've got this life ahead of you and the time to do the things that really make you feel fulfilled. That's empowered women to me. For real, there's, I mean, people always say, oh, I'm too, I'm too old to do this. I'm too old to do that. And, you know, the stories that I've shared over and over and over again, you're never too old. You're never too old to do the things. Never too old. Well, and you- never too old to repair relationships. And I'm saying that with one caveat. There are relationships, because I'm a therapist, that are too toxic, that people need to step away from and be divorced from. Those are absolutely true. But where relationships can be healed, it's so worth the effort. And sometimes it's a matter of sitting back and just listening with an open heart. Well, Yvonne, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being a part of the Inspired Women audience. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating review. And don't forget to share this out with somebody who could use some inspiration today. Tag us at Inspired Women Podcast, both on Facebook and Instagram. Have a great day.